Welcome into another edition of the Hops and Spirits Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Green, and I have a great group of people with me this week as we bring back Under the Influence, the Roundtable Series, and we're under the influence of beer once again. Uh, but before we get to that, don't forget to check us out on our social media at Hop Spirits, all one word, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And while you're there, click on the link so you can sign up for our Drinking Buddies monthly giveaway club where we do a lot of fun giveaways. Who knows, you might win a sample from uh, my beer fridge or even the bourbon bar uh, and some other fun giveaways as well. All you got to do, like I said, it's very simple. Go to our social media at Hopspirits, all one word. Click the link, sign up. It takes nothing but a minute and you could be winning some really cool prizes. And once you sign up once, you're eligible every month after that. But now let's get to what we were here for, and that is our Under the Influence Roundtable. I have no clue how this will look on the screen after it's done recording, so who's where, but let's introduce you to the panel first. We'll go ladies first. Kenzie Bernhardt, host of Boys Are From Mars, a podcast, porchdrinking.com writer, and a bartender at Gallant Fox in Louisville. Kenzie, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Excited to be back for this go around. <laughs> we also have Neil Witte, Master Cicerone, and owner, founder of Tapstar and Craft Quality Solutions. Neil, welcome back as well. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, we also have Brian Roth, editor and writer at Good Beer Hunting and director of North American Guild of Beer Writers. Brian, and welcome back. Thank you. Can't wait to, uh, to mix it up with these great people. <laughs> and the newest addition to our panel, a little bit of timing didn't work out last time, is Doug Velicki. Did I say that right? You got it. Awesome. Awesome. Chief Strategy Officer for Revolution Brewing and founder of BeerCrunchers.com. Doug, welcome in. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Now, like I always say, we start out with one tough question. I did give you a little hint before I hit the record button. Um, obviously, we've all had a, maybe a little extra time on our hands as we've come up on about that year uh, you know, mark on, on the pandemic. Have any of you picked up a new hobby and are you any good at it? Well, I'll, I'll start since there's a little bit of silence uh, and, and it's a little bit of a confession. I'm one of those people that started baking bread. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to travel a ton and I was just never in a spot where I could take the time to really figure out a sourdough culture and like figure out the waxing and waning of the thing. But I finally did it and, uh, and I've got it down to a formula now. So that and uh, Frisbee golf, I've been playing a lot of Frisbee golf. Nice, nice. I've been patiently trying to manage a yard. Uh, so this is a, a hobby by, uh, by necessity, not by choice. I moved into a new home uh, right as the pandemic was kind of kicking into high gear uh, in 2020. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time practicing growing grass and clover and moving leaves from one spot to another. I bought... Um rollerblades, I guess, back in April. Um, so I kind of rollerbladed all summer up and down my street because you really couldn't go anywhere with the rollerblades. But I mastered rollerblading and I'm looking forward to strapping them back up when the weather gets warmer here. Kinsey, can you go backwards? No. <laughs> Unless I'm going, there's a count if I'm like kind of going down a hill, but I never mastered backwards. I mastered, you know, going, you know, being able to kind of look graceful and like I knew what I was doing but no I not backwards yet maybe that'll be this summer um I kind of hit a wall in January and like badly needed some kind of new hobby I was just getting really bored and then it was right around when the whole GameStop 
thing happened. And that somehow lent, let, uh, led me down the rabbit hole of um, blockchain and what, how that pertains to like cryptocurrencies and just not being a trader of these things, but just wanting to understand what the heck was going on here. So I've actually been having a lot of fun learning about that. It's kind of like mind blowing stuff that might be the future, might be nothing. Uh, not really sure, but it's been very fascinating. So I spent like time over the last month or so reading about it, watching a lot of videos and it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, that, that was a very wild, uh, well, it still is a wild, wild story with, with what's going on there and the uh, amazing what Reddit and different things can do nowadays to, to what's going on. For, for me, it's uh, been cooking kind of on the Neil's, uh, not doing bread, Neil, but just kind of actually taking uh, uh, and not just heating up a meal, but actually like tonight I made a, what was dubbed mushu bowl, uh, beef bowls, which is beef rice and a nice uh, mixture of uh, uh, sauces. But uh, I, I, you know, 10 years ago needed like a recipe to make eggs and bacon. So I think I've come a little ways. <laughs> uh well, let's get into the, the, the harder questions, potentially. Uh, and th this is kind of what uh, got me on this, this question is, Highwire is planning on coming to Louisville. Um, they're planning on opening another uh, location in Louisville. Um, and also then just a couple of the Lexington breweries where I'm, I live have added a second location in their, their own cities or uh, one has a farm now, things like that. But what do you guys think about breweries kind of opening up a second or third locations or even like a brew pub? Now, what do you guys think of that? Is that just a strategy to maybe make their name bigger or just kind of a smart business decision to, you know, obviously if you can have another location, in another spot, you can make a few more dollars, hopefully. Uh, I can actually, uh, speaking of highwire, I can speak from experience. Uh, so here in Durham, North Carolina, Highwire created their first outpost outside of Asheville. Um, so they, they had a second location in Asheville, uh, the Big Top. And then, oh, this was uh, fall of 2018, opened up a space in Durham uh, in one of the city's many older kind of renovated tobacco warehouses. And it has been nothing but a smash hit. Um, now, I'll say that having not been there in some time due to COVID, but at least for, you know, the success that they've had uh, branching out, you know, coming uh, a couple hundred miles east, uh, you know, it, it, I think that's the kind of hub and spoke model that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would be I'm very curious to see how it works for them um, in Kentucky, uh, because they've got they've had some experience going into Tennessee. I believe they're in Nashville as well. But when you know when it, a separation of a thousand miles, not that far, but you know we're talking about hundreds and hundreds versus at least in the same state, there is some ad uh, some advantage for people who know who you are. Uh, but it also I'll say you no know, depends on what the space is. And what they can do, uh, what what it means in terms of how welcoming it is, and and what it offers in terms of something new. So I, when they announced that they were coming to Louisville, the city that I currently reside in, um, was obviously a very big deal because it was the first time a brewery outside the state of Kentucky has essentially come into the state of Kentucky. Breweries have expanded with inside the city, or in, excuse me, inside the state. Um, so when I spoke to the owner, and his name is slipping my mind. Um, he, he credited to having, uh, when they first kind of expanded distribution to Kentucky, he spent a lot of time here in Louisville and really loved the city 
and loved every time he came and visited the different neighborhoods that consist of Louisville. And they see it kind of as a way to grow their distribution even further west, uh, if that makes sense. So, you know, being as far west as Louisville from Asheville and Durham, you know, it's a way for them to even expand further west, probably west of the Mississippi. Um, and I think they also saw how well Highwire obviously does in, in Louisville as well as why they expanded it. But I, you know, it's interesting because you see, this is a time when you don't really see, to expand a tap room is weird right now because, you know, people can't go to them. So it's, it's I don't know if people are planning for the future or they just see that as another way to grow distribution. So um, I think it's obviously, we're very excited for Howard to join the Kentucky beer community. Yeah, I think uh, like COVID considerations aside and like doing something like that in this environment, it's interesting to see that kind of model spring up and, and how people are playing that as, as an expansion of their existing brewery versus the expanding via distribution. You know, I, I worked for a long time for a large craft brewer that, you know, and I got to see firsthand what happens, what, you know, when you send a beer that's beloved in the hometown and then you send it halfway across the country and you go out there and people have no idea who you are and selling is a totally different proposition. And it's hard to build your brand because you're not the hometown brewery. Uh, you're just somebody who's coming from, you know, wherever. We don't know where you're from. We don't know anything about you. And we can get everything you make here locally and fresher, right? So it's really difficult to expand as a brewery, you know, beyond a certain perimeter. Uh, but if you're establishing an outpost and you build a brewery, now you're kind of the hometown beer in a way, right? I mean, you've, you're employing local people, you're making beer there, it's fresh. And so you've got that whole different angle. And so, you know, like modern times has kind of done a little version of that. I mean, we even saw that as far back as like Green Flash. You know, we all saw how that turned out, but that was different, a whole different discussion. But still, you know, as far back as then, there were breweries that were that we're doing that kind of model, like, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna be putting some outposts here and there to try and be the local thing where maybe we feel like distribution isn't gonna be as successful. Um, and, you know, I, we haven't really seen anybody be, uh, grow really big like that. Um, but, you know, it's definitely a different approach to expanding your footprint for sure. And it's, it's interesting to watch. Yeah, Neil hit on a, a lot of points I was going to say. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of reasons historically why we've seen breweries of way different sizes try to do this, but they all tend to stem back to the fact of how important being local is and trying to be local in another place as well as where your original roots lie. Like we saw um, Goose Island was building, I don't know if it was maybe like 2017, something like that, where all of a sudden Goose Island was opening up brew pubs in Philadelphia. And for, for someone like that, I think it's less about the, um, you know, profitability of that tap room or restaurant, but more so the fact that when you're local, you know, your brand is going to be able to command a lot more slots on the shelf versus when you're just an outsider coming in. So if you have this 
uh, tap room that even though they're not local, they're say Chicago or New York, depending on how you want to classify them. Um, they uh, get the kind of feel of local and can make the case for having, you know, four beers on the shelf instead of two at the local grocery store. And that's something that it, that's the, the big win that a huge brewery to me, why they would want to have tap rooms everywhere. Then, um, you know, more recently, I've seen breweries that have been open for, for years, five, six, seven, eight years, who are just now looking into their second tap room. And for them, it's more out of necessity and deciding, you know, they maybe this wasn't their plan all along, but they just decided they want to control all their destiny. They want to control their destiny. They see their original tap room as their primary moneymaker, and they want to have a second one of those. Maybe it's just on the other side of town in whatever city they are in, or maybe it's in a, the next city over. But um, that's something I've seen happen recently. And then the last one is, you know, their breweries um, field work in California, if anyone's familiar with them, they're one that this was their model from the start. They started in Berkeley, California, but within six months, there was a Sacramento tap room, then a Napa tap room, all within, you know, a, a self-distributionable uh, distance, call it an hour and a half apart, but all across the northern part of California. That was their plan because having a lot of tap rooms, especially in a given city, isn't always three-tier friendly, meaning distributors don't always love this model. But so when, when you go about this, you have to be kind of willing to, um, you know, know what you're getting into. And so for a brewery like Fieldwork, that, that you can tell they never had any interest in selling beer through the three-tier system. Their model was to just kind of own that part of Northern California by having strongholds in all these key places. Yeah. I find it very interesting too, because you see it done differently. What another one that I, I think of that I kind of chuckle at, because they have four locations and I swear a six mile radius and that is Braxton. <laughs> they have their main location. They have a labs that they took over an old brewery. They have a barrel house. That's kind of more of a restaurant. And then they went across the river into Cincinnati because I will give them this going across those bridges can be a pain in the butt. So I totally get that. I mean, do you guys just kind of see it more as like a, Hey, sometimes it just works where we just want to stay local and expand, uh, you know, to hit different parts. Cause obviously in bigger towns, not everyone's going to drive across town to, to the brewery every, every day. Um, Cause it could be a 40, 50 minute drive, drive depending on where you're at um, or even visitors. Uh, you know, I know talking to some of the Lexington guys, they're not that far out of downtown, but people visiting, they're probably only going to go into that little radius. Um, so is it more of just kind of their philosophies? Is that kind of what we're thinking? You know, whether it's a distribution thing or just a um, being available thing. I think the, to me, it seems like the, the, the multiple tap rooms in the same city or this, you know, the, the same metro area is kind of more building on that brand equity and, you know, hitting an audience that's less likely to drive across town. Uh, but you're already drawing on people that already know who you are and like your beer and are inclined to visit you anyway, um, as opposed to, you know, going a couple states away and doing it or even a state away where, you know, you're not really, you don't have that local thing going again. So I think there's a couple different motivations there, depending on how far away you're going with that. And it's, it can be really risky the further you're going too, because it's not like, you know, you expand distribution 
you know, that's risky, but you can always kind of pull out of the state. I mean, you know, you're going to take a hit in doing that. But if you open a tap room and fail, I mean, that's a huge capital expenditure. Um, you know, if you're making beer there, um, to, you know, to that's really risky. So, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do for sure. There's, there's one connected tissue, I think, to the, to what we're all saying, and I'll credit this to uh, Michael Urich, uh, who's an economist. He worked for the Beer Institute for a long time and now has his own consultancy, Seventh Point Analytic, where, um, surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, uh, the further you move away from your home, uh, the less share that you will have in the marketplace. So he's done versions of this uh, analysis for breweries, and every time... Uh, this is broad uh, brush strokes here that basically if you look at something, your, your share of market within 15 miles of what you consider your home base versus 100 miles, the variability, so the decrease in your share uh, can pretty much be directly attributed to the distance you travel away from your home base. And a lot of that is going to the things that, you know, Doug was talking about that could be, you know, familiarity. Uh, and you know, the, so the, this gets back to this kind of hub and spoke model that I was talking about as well, where, you know, if you've got geographic pinpoints that make natural connections, it's not just a, you know, a benefit in terms of economics of margins when you can actually have people to your tap room, but then you are also, you get to a point where your familiarity, your relationships with other businesses, with distributors, with the way that you're going to be selling your product starts to really, really matter. And all of a sudden where, you know, you might be a 3% of a market share a hundred miles away by extending your footprint, all of a sudden you're bringing that up a few more percentage points, which can mean a lot on the bottom line. And to build on something Brian said, um, the more, when you, when someone has an experience, even if it's not at a big production brewery, even if it's just at this tap room, that experience stays with you. And that makes when you're at the store, whether it's subconscious or at the top of your mind, you're thinking about that place that you had a good time at their location and you're a lot more likely to buy that beer. And, uh, if you've got a second tap room in a neighboring state, you know, call it one city away, you know, you've, you've just, you know, drastically increased the amount of people that are going to have that experience who might not have traveled the however many hours to your, to your home base, but they've been to your satellite, uh, location and, and had that experience and have the memories of, you know, just having a great time one night. And, uh, you, it's hard to measure how important that is, but I think that's a bet that a lot of people are making as well when they, when they set these up. Hey, Doug, when, can... you, when you pose this question, you mentioned back Braxton brewing out of Northern Kentucky, which I've been, I've been to their three in Northern Kentucky. They have their HQ, their barrel house, their labs. And then they just recently opened up in Cincinnati across the river. And I think the important thing with them is I've been to the three in Northern Kentucky is I can go to each one and have a different experience at the other. You know, I go to HQ and it's this kind of vibe and I go to labs and I know I'm going to be able to try some of their experimental beers and have this experience. And I go to barrel house and I feel like it's a different experience there. So I think they did a really good job when opening all these different locations that are just so close to each other that when you go there, you have a different experience at, 
at each one. You're not going to the same brewery over and over again. So I think that's important when breweries decide to open up multiple locations within kind of the same area. And um, I think that's why they they do it and they do it so well um, because I'm you're you're right. They're within like a three mile radius of each other, very close, which is very crazy for Burrito, it's a risk, but um, they did a really great job at making each experience and each tap room different from each other. So you could do all four in one day and feel like you hit a different brewery. Like I was gonna ask you, um, maybe kind of the the natural break off of this question, a lot of things we're talking about too, because Rev has spent so much of its time focusing on the in-state market of Illinois and kind of cultivating that in such an important way. How, how is it that you guys think about like what local means in this context exactly? It's changed uh, recently. So when we expanded our distribution for the first time, you know, way before my time at the company, the thought process was to skip a state. So Ohio was actually the first state we opened. We skipped Indiana, went to Ohio. And then uh, next was like Massachusetts, which was where our owner was from, was one of those kind of stories you heard a lot of in 2014, 2015, Wonders Beer there. We're still there and we still love uh, Massachusetts, but that's kind of what led us there first. Um, But much more recently, we've um, gone into Indiana and Wisconsin and had wild success, like grew uh, last year in a year where it was really hard for a brewery what, that's so heavily um, on-premise draft beer uh, to grow in uh, states that we weren't just brand new states. I mean, we've been there a couple of years. So what's, what's local to us is, is changing and it's really becoming you know, Milwaukee and Northern Indiana and even Indianapolis, which aren't terribly far. Because a lot of times we'll quote our sales in Illinois, our home state, but really Milwaukee is closer to Chicago than most of Illinois and same with South Bend, Indiana and and all that. So, and and even when you get into Michigan, we're also in Michigan and you get the Southwest corner where we're as much closer to Chicago or we sell a lot more beer there than we do on the side with like Detroit, just because it's so much distance there between us and them. So we tend to think of local as our home state, but especially Chicago and then this Um, these neighboring areas of Milwaukee, Northern Indiana, and Southwest Michigan has really become, you know, a a stretching version of, of, of local to us. Yeah. I find find that interesting because you never know what, what the markets change, things change, you know, the pandemic, I think has taught us that Uh, something else that I think has changed for a lot of breweries. And I think Brian, I may have seen this on your Twitter or something like that. I'm not sure. But I've also noticed it from a lot more breweries. For the longest time, it was a four pack or a six pack, and that was about it. That was, or or maybe a single can, if, if we were so lucky. But a lot of places are now going to twelve packs. Not everything is in a twelve pack, but they might have a couple twelve packs. Maybe they have a variety twelve pack. Um, why do you think more breweries, craft, especially craft, are now going to twelve packs? That COVID life, <laughs> right? Uh, Doug, I, Doug, I think I remember correctly too. This is something that you covered on Beer Crunchers at one point. So if you allow me, I'll uh, maybe set set you up, and you can you can uh, oop this alley. Um, 
Yeah, it was like, so I, it was the same thing that happened so often with everything else, you know, early, mid 2020, the pantry loading. And so large format, pretty much everything was selling really, really well. Um, I'm looking at the latest volume numbers, uh, which cover the 15, 52 weeks in IRI tracked chain retail. Um, so this is basically... Uh, this is basically the, uh, the pandemic, the, the full year of the pandemic in craft defined 12 pack, 12 ounce cans were up 51% uh, over the past 52 weeks. Um, and that's well above everything else. That's above kind of the, the baseline for craft sales as well. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it just fit in line with so much that was going on. And it was also uh, a habit of more people were just putting it in beer into 12 packs too. Um, I was at the store today and seeing 12 packs from local breweries uh, in Wake Forest and Raleigh to a uh, regionally distributed brewery like Wicked Weed uh, in 12 packs with 12 ounce cans for the first time. Um, so yeah, I, I think it just felt very, very close. Uh, Doug, what is it that you, that you found when you were looking at all this? So I started, this was like maybe mid-November. I was trying to write a predictions post for 2021. And my first one I started writing about was craft breweries going into 12 packs and I couldn't stop writing. And then I ended up turning the post away from being a predictions post to being 12 reasons why craft breweries <laughs> should go into 12 packs. So um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I, I think there's so many, I mean, it's, it's what you hit on. I mean, COVID trends, people uh, making the best, making the most out of their trips to the store more, more happy than ever to uh, walk away with 12 of the same beer. I mean, if it's a variety pack, even better um, in the, in the variety pack world, you know, it, it ended up variety packs are getting more creative than they used to be. They used to be very bland and for before styles that have nothing to do with each other and not necessarily the best representation of the brewery that's been changing and they've become much more experiential and replaced the, the tap room experience in some ways and allowed you to bring that home at a time when there was no tap rooms to go to. Um, the, the big reason is volume. I mean, you've, you've got a chance to, um, just sell more beer to more people. You, your retailers love them because they're selling, they wind up net selling more beer. So they're happy to give you the spots. You can a lot of times get extra shelf spots by introducing a 12 pack. Cause like I said, retailers were so welcoming of them because it's what was selling the, the more the merrier for any brewery that could turn one on uh, or turn additional ones on and get them out there. And, um, I'm a big fan of them because I think it gives breweries more focus. This is something I am currently writing about, probably will post something tomorrow or the next day um, that craft beer lacks sometimes is like basic brand building focus, getting caught up in the heavy, heavy rotation. And a lot of small breweries, I feel like have a winner that they're just, they just refuse to make uh, regularly enough to make it like their lead horse. And I just think that's such an important thing to do to never stop the one-offs from coming. Cause those are the pipeline to, you know, finding out what, what works and what sticks, but, uh, kind of forcing yourself into a 12 pack is, uh, has many advantages in terms of kind of establishing that when you, especially when you're doing it for the first time, you're going to do it with your best seller. And it's a, it's a way to lean into that even more so. 
Yeah, that market is just go on and on. So yeah, it sounds like it. I'm I'm anxious to read that. I mean, I'm just thinking of my own personal experience. I mean, you know, uh, I was pantry loading like the rest of the country and the rest of the world probably around this time last year, almost a year ago. And and even now when I, you know, um, I'm comfortable going to the grocery store. I don't, you know, I don't have an issue with running up to the store if I need to grab something, but I still have that habit. I'm still buying bulk stuff and like, you know, I've got extra space where I've just got more stuff stored. I'm just, just buying in larger quantities. And it's just, it's, it's a buying habit that I have for myself. I'm not saying I'm the average person, but you know, there's gotta be, you know, lots and lots of other people who are still doing that type of purchasing. So, you know, that and with retailers, you know, probably creating more shelf space for these as well and being so welcoming of it, uh, you know, it's, it's not surprising that there's so many more 12 packs. So I'm going to take a different angle. I don't understand me personally, the 12 packs. When I go to, you know, the, the local beer store, I'm buying a six pack of most like I'll get doubles, but they're all different beers. I, cause I, I don't know if I'm still young enough in the, in my beer journey that I want to try so many different beers, but if I was stuck with 12 of the same beers, I'm sure eight of them would still be there six months later. Don't say it, Kinsey. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I probably have a very, this is a very unpopular opinion. My, and like, for Christmas, my brother got me a 12 pack of Two Hearted Ale, and I still have some still in the fridge. Oh no! <laughs> Don't worry, I'm 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 slowly drinking them this week to get them gone. But I, it's to be stuck, not stuck, but like I just like to try. You know, there's so many beers out there, and I'm like, maybe it's just my mind. Like, oh my god, I haven't tried this beer. I haven't tried this beer that I just want to try them all. Where I'm like, I can't get stuck with 12 of the same ones, and that puts me 12 beers behind of trying new ones. So. It, it fast. I mean, it doesn't fascinate me, but when I see 12 packs, I kind of like, oh, who would ever buy that? But I guess there are some people and this trend, you know, you're seeing it more often, you know, breweries putting their flagship beer in a 12 pack and it is something I just will probably never get into, which I don't know what that says. Maybe in like two years, you see me walk in the store with like 12 packs of whatever beer and I've completely changed, but uh, right now, I'm just like, oh, who would buy twelve of the same beer? That's so boring. But <laughs> <laughs> there are two. There are two reasons why I think uh, why this is very, very important. Uh, one, Kinsey, I'm sorry. The number one reason is if Allagash is putting white in a 12, 12 pack, twelve cans, like something's going right there. Uh, but for for everybody else, actually, the, and this was actually something I was thinking about today when I was seeing local businesses who have brands and 12 packs for the first time, the infrastructure is there now Mm -hmm. is that the investment has been made. So even if it's a case, if you're functioning, say with a mobile canning company, but you're putting in the, you're putting in the orders, you now have put in the development, you have the orders for your boxes, for the cans that you need. Uh, the labeling for whatever brand is going, if you switched from bottles to cans, you know, whatever it may be, from small to big, companies have invested in these things. 
And so, you know, as with so many things in, in craft beer, you know, the long tail is where a lot of movement happens. And when I say that, I mean the smaller local businesses. And so now that we've seen them spend the money because of the necessity of 2020, moving forward, it only makes sense that we will continue to see them, especially when they start getting the kind of positive reactions from, you know, Doug, Neil, Jonathan, and myself, Kinsey will welcome you in a couple of years for sure. If they put Allagas in 12 packs, I would buy it, but that's only because I can't get it here. So I'd be stockpiling that only to, because I just can't get it here in Kentucky. So, so Kinsey, you are not alone. Um, when, I, when I wrote this post a couple months ago, you know, I, I shared it a few places where I frequent and then other people showed me, uh, you know, them sharing it elsewhere. And, you know, when it would be on like LinkedIn or Twitter, it got all kind of like, you know, thumbs up. Uh, but someone put it on, uh, actually, Todd, the founder of Beer Advocate, made a post out of it saying, like, what do you all think about this post? And it got absolutely destroyed. And the people on Beer Advocate hated it and picked apart everything. I've, I've never gotten so much feedback, positive or negative, in this case, very negative. That is awesome. On, on a post. I almost want to, like, frame this thing. It was, it was beautiful. I, I had so much fun reading it because I normally just get, like, real quick, you know, comments like good stuff. And that's it. And uh, this was just like dissecting every word I wrote. And it was very fascinating. So um, it's clearly, uh, you know, maybe what there's probably some age to it, some like where you mm -hmm. are in your craft beer journey. There's a lot of people who are just kind of exhausted from rotation um, and ready to commit to their favorite couple beers. Um, there, there's an element of pride to it that I think that someone, uh, this isn't my original idea. But uh, someone brought up to me that um, they think there's a matter of pride to just the way that pack looks. If there's a beer that you've been drinking for five years, 10 years that just got made, put in this 12 pack, which probably looks beautiful compared to what six cans on a ring turned all different ways looks. And just like if you're like a prideful uh, frequenter of this brewery and you see that at the store, there's some there's some like even if it's just in the back of your mind feeling a good feeling of grabbing that. Um, that's kind of like saying, you know, my brewery's made it. So it is, it's pretty cool to carry a 12 pack out of the store instead of the three ring. You look a lot cooler. You look like you're about to have a good weekend or a good, a good night totally. rather than grabbing the, the plastic pack tech. The case is the boss move. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, now I will say it's, it's interesting sometimes to see what beers are getting put in the 12 packs. Uh, cause I, I would have never have thought um, here locally for me, Country Boy, they put their super premium lager in one, which is a hundred calorie beer, which I'm like, I didn't even know you had that on tap sometimes. Um, but obviously that they they knew there's a market. They've, they've got two tap rooms, you know, big facility to distribute. Uh, but it, I find that makes me think of when, when Brian was talking about, you know, like obviously there's a reason that's in a 12 pack. So they know what they're, they're, they're doing. Um, so I always find it interesting too what they will put in the 12 pack. I, I'm one that would more prefer the variety. Like um, we're, we're going to touch on them a little later here is Boulevard. They did one where they had four variants of, of something, uh, you know, like their wheat and then like three different versions of, of it. Um, that's more of where I would go for a 12 pack. Although I'll get a 24 pack of like, you know, name brand, whatever, just so I kind of have some extra drinking beer in the fridge. But I always, kind of find it interesting what they will put in the 12 pack. Yeah, that, that actually is something that 
I think also took prominence last year too. It's not just the fact that the volume, the actual number of cans or bottles you get there, uh, but in some cases, the approach to it specifically at a time where you didn't have the function to go out to a bar or a brewery uh, to experiment. And we lost that part of our interaction with the food and beverage world. And one way to lean into that was, you know, at least we can get some experimentation from a variety pack that offers different things. Um, there have been some good examples over the years. Uh, there were actually more so last year during the holiday season, a, an influx of, uh, of um, advent calendar Mm -hmm. uh, collections, 12 packs and largers, even uh, a craft beer seller uh, headquartered in Massachusetts, uh, but they have franchises around the East Coast. They did an advent calendar that's curated by the stores. And so you'd get your collection, and this is kind of the, the extreme example of it, but you know, it's specifically selected. And there are, there are themes, there are breweries who do IPA uh, uh, 12 packs, which are mixed variety packs, Stone being one of them. Um, and Revolution actually has done a really great job um, kind of leaning into that with the Hero series and the way that that's played. Doug, I, I'm curious, I'm just gonna keep on tossing it in your direction. Uh, thank you for being my my battery mate um, for this for this conversation because you guys just launched a brand new collection too. Uh, it was I remember seeing you sharing stuff about the wrestling themed production of a of a new mix pack as well. Oh yeah, um, so we have we have two mix packs. We just launched our second. The first is called the League of Heroes. Um, four different IPAs, but what we do different on this one and makes it such a good seller and it's a lot of costs and work on our end, but we find that it's very much worth it is that every three months or so we give the pack a new look. Like the text is still in the same place. It still um, has a lot of elements that are familiar, but we just like a comic book cover would have a different look each issue. Every three months we change up the um, IPAs that are in the pack and, um, and then the look to the pack as well. And that keeps that new and fresh feel to it. And we still like package it fresh every two weeks during that three months. So freshness is a big, big key to this, but as well as the variety. And what we do that I've seen not enough breweries out there do is to help a variety pack really catch on is we make uh, three of the four beers in it are only put in the pack. You can't buy them anywhere else. So we put exclusive beers in it and that's the only way to get it and then the customer is only committing since they're trying a lot of new stuff through it they're only committing to three so it's not as big of an investment if there's one that they're not sure if they're going to like or not so um we have that one that's always like changing and getting like a refreshed look to it and then we just added a variety pack of our um, session sours our 4.5 percent fruited sours same base beer but four different fruit combinations and that's a, a big bet we made on this uh, category that we kind of stumbled into and uh, turned into a runaway hit as a, as a six pack. And so we made the variety pack as like, you know, we did not want to make a seltzer. We didn't want to get into alternatives. We wanted to stay with beer, but we also wanted to make sure we were creating ways to bring in uh, new people who maybe don't like bitterness, don't like IPAs, or maybe even don't like lagers. So this was something different to maybe attract a seltzer drinker, or I think a, a wine drinker tends to really 
um, appreciate these. So um, that's our new one. It just started cranking out a few weeks ago. So uh, no, no, no good data yet, but uh, the summer is when we'll really find out if we have can I, one. Can I, I will drop one bit of data just to put a bow on it from my end, at least. The, the top three uh, style categories from 2020 in terms of volume growth, not absolute raw numbers. Fruit beer was number one. IPA was number two. Variety pack was number three. And and I'm I'm okay with that. Um, and I I would love to try the sours that, that Doug's talking about because that's right up my my alley. <laughs> um, we'll make that uh, happen. Hey, I'm cool with that. Um, <laughs> our third topic is one that kind of hits home to me because I just finished up Flavorful February. Hopefully, y'all listen to to every single one of those all hours of of them. Uh, but uh, Foundry Distilling uh, out in Iowa does something really cool. They take um, beer. They, you know, Boulevard, Stone, Left Hand Brewing, and then some Iowa ones as well. The, the mash, truck it up there, turn it into whiskey. But I also know in uh, Columbus, Ohio, Middle West Spirits worked with BrewDog uh, to make kind of a Boilermaker series, some, some whiskeys based off of beer. Uh, I'm starting to wonder, is they're becoming more of a collaboration between distilleries and breweries than before. And not just, Hey, can I have your barrel and put something in it? Um, because that's now pretty much done everywhere, but kind of actually true collaborations. I, I've been really amazed by those. I'll happily go first. <laughs> <laughs> we do a lot of this. So I've got a couple pretty cool examples for you about, I want to say like three years ago, we had a, partnership with Pinot Ricard, who owns Jameson. And we participated in a program called Drinking Buddies. And there was a lot of other programs to it as well. But, um, you know, we just, we, we did a lot of uh, events in, around Chicago um, with, you know, like a beer and a shot specials at bars, but there was like small activation elements to it like that. But the, the big, the big payoff for us was we got to go to um, not me personally, but our brewmaster, our owner, and a couple of folks on the marketing team got to go to Ireland and brew a version of um, Jameson Cask, Caskmates whiskey, but um, off of our um, pale ale called Fist City. So we brewed a batch of Fist City over there that turned into, that got distilled down and turned into this Jameson Caskmates that got sold in Chicago and, and was branded to look like um, our brand and the Chicago flag mashed up with the the Jameson brand. So that was a really fun um, thing we did with them that was definitely a, you know, more collaborative or, or there was more to the story than simply just being uh, mm -hmm. buying some barrels from a distillery. Um, we did something similar with our, um, the beer that went out of code during the pandemic when we had to bring back all this draft beer that was at distributors and buy it back. We handed over all of our Antihero, which is our flagship beer, half of our sales, to this company called CH Distilling, who makes Malort, if anyone's familiar. Uh, Malort is the uh, a famous liquor around Chicago that everybody takes a shot of when they, when they come to visit, and it's a, <laughs> kind of a rite of passage, and uh, it's, let's just say it's an acquired taste. And uh, so we made a special version of that with distilled down Antihero. And we, you know, sold bottles. It only yielded, you know, nothing crazy. It was like 50 cases or no, it was probably about hundred cases, but we donated all the money to a great charity in our neighborhood. 
and had a lot of fun with it. So that was another neat uh, crossover to a spirits company. And then uh, Whistle Pig is another uh, distillery in Vermont that we've um, had a lot of fun collaborating with, getting their barrels, making beers with their barrels, but also having like beer and food pairing dinners with them where representatives of their team came and, you know, people got um, flights that had beers of ours aged in their barrels, but then also um, spirits uh, poured. And then the, our brewmaster and, and representatives from their team would talk. And so we've done fun things like that with distilleries too. Yeah, that's great. The uh, That one project with the out-of-code beer reminds me of one that uh, Boulevard did some years ago with a local distillery in, here in Kansas City, uh, uh, Rieger & Sons uh, Distillery, uh, Rieger & Company. And that they, uh, they used Boulevard beer that had uh, been destined for export and it froze on a container. Something went wrong on the container and they, and it came back and Boulevard took all that and, and gave it to the distillery and they used all that, all the beer that was recovered and, and made a, uh, made a white dog they called uh, left for dead. So it was, and it was a fun project. It was, it was pretty good. You know, it wasn't, you know, it didn't go through full like barrel aging process mm -hmm. or anything like that, but uh, you know, it was a fun little project. Uh, I've seen a few things like that pop up, but, you know, Jonathan, to your point, a lot of the stuff I've seen is, is kind of just, you know, we're going to like, you know, age this in the barrel, you know, we're going to take the distiller's barrel, that type of thing. That's most of what I've seen. Yeah. I first heard about this experience or this um, partnership. Um, one of my friends had a podcast and he did it with I'm going to pronounce their name wrong, Continuum Distilling out of Connecticut, where they use, you know, either it's the mash or the, the, the spent, I guess, the spent hops from breweries. And I think they have two products. They have a, a whiskey and even a, um, I believe it's a gin. And even on the label, it says spirits distilled from grain, cane, and hops. So they even use, beyond the mash, they use the hops as well. Um, I believe it's a gin. You'll have to look it up. It's called Continuum. But they they did this, you know, I listened to this podcast a couple of years ago. So they were kind of at the forefront of all this. And I thought the idea was crazy. But now you see it, you see other, you know, breweries and distilleries, you know, using each other's products to make, you know, products of their own, which is very interesting. And it's, you know, here in Kentucky, you always see bourbon barrel aged beers. I mean, for breweries here, it's so easy to get a bourbon barrel. So it's interesting to see breweries and even distilleries go beyond just using each other's barrels to make something else, making a different kind of alcoholic beverage. Yeah, I, I, this represents a broader integration uh, that, you know, not just some kind of collaborative project so much, but even just the way that tastes are shifting and changing too. So this isn't, I, I think, answering that question directly, but I do think that, you know, it is impossible to overlook the way that American preferences have shifted toward non-beer products, uh, you know, ready to drink canned cocktails uh, and spirits, which have taken a good amount of, of share servings from beer in the last decade. 
Uh, and so the, the further blurring of the lines, whether it is a beer made with or in conjunction to or inside something to do with spirits, the distilling process, I think in some way, it also gets to what people want from a beverage alcohol flavor experience, which is constantly evolving and changing uh, and not denying that there is more interest than ever in spirits and cocktails, that finding ways to have natural overlap just makes good business sense. Yeah, and, and I can piggyback a couple on that. One in Lexington has both. They they are a distillery and a, a brewing company. Granted, they're owned by a, a large conglomerate, so it's kind of hard to really. But one that I was really shocked by that does this, and I'm sure we've all heard of this beer company, Dogfish uh, Head. They have a distillery. I never knew that up until this year. Never knew that. And and then doing some other research, I, I found a few others that that kind of have both. And it just, it's fascinating to me to see uh, things like that. And um, uh, Also, I was really intrigued. I was talking to uh, Nicole Austin on an episode earlier. She's the uh, general manager distiller at um, Cascade Hollow, better known as the home of George Dickel. And she said she can actually take a lot of um, stuff from the craft beer world in terms of how they use their flavors. This goes to Brian's point, the flavor changes and use that in making blended whiskeys and things like that. And I thought that was weird to hear someone in that industry looking at the craft beer world and going of, of how such a cool way of they all do flavors now and how you can use that in a, in a totally different uh, field. Yeah, well, one it, thing actually. It, I would say in addition the, to Dogfish Head, I think Rogue has, Rogue has a distillery, correct? They make whiskey? Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, Dogfish, which for years has had their distillery uh, located at Rehoboth Beach, which then moved to Milton when they upgraded that facility, getting into the RT RTD cocktail game. Um, but one of the things actually unique, Jonathan, to, to your point exactly, was the last two weeks, I've had two conversations uh, with people who uh, work with or around distilleries producing gin who are using craft beer as an example to do a variety of one-off flavor projects basically because you know gin being kind of the quickest to market version that a lot of uh, small batch craft distilleries can make they're looking at kind of the one-off uh, specialty release process that craft brewers have had to such success over the last few years and turning that into you know this week's flavored gin kind of process so i think there is absolutely like, there are things to learn and overlap there that can that can benefit benefit everybody yeah and speaking of the one-off releases you know i follow the barrel age beer scene fairly closely mainly because we have so many great barrel programs at breweries out of chicago um but there's been a noticeable shift for started a few years ago and is really heating up where you know the the adjuncts that go into a lot of these the the pastry stouts and there's kind of those are starting to hit a wall it's not that they're going going away but there's kind of not too many places left for those to evolve and people have been getting much more fascinated by the and asking more about the types of barrels that the beer is being aged in and so there's been a lot more breweries trying to get, you know, 12 of the same barrel so that the beer can be, you know, a, a true representation of the spirit versus, you know, a hodgepodge of a bunch of different ones. 
And so we're seeing Goose Island, uh, we've done it at Revolution, others have as well, of trying to, you know, tie better tie in the specific barrel it was aged in because I think consumers are kind of finally ready for that. Like 50-50, 10 years ago was doing that. But I feel like if you remember all the bottles with the different colors of wax, like that was really innovative at the time, but I don't think the drinkers of those beers were quite ready for that or nuanced enough to pick them out. I certainly wasn't. Um, but it just seems like they were almost 10 years too early on that, but it was really cool that they were that far ahead of things. But I feel like that is kind of starting to heat up a little bit, which is going to create more interest in these brewery distillery um, collaborations. And especially if you can find unique ways to do it. I was going to say one that I know that, or at least Nate, when you talk about names and uh, I see a lot of, or started to see some places go, this is aged in Buffalo trace barrels. This is aged in XYZ. And I, I think that goes to your point, Doug, that uh, the consumer is going to start paying a little more attention to that. Um, now we've had a lot of fun. We're going to go to a slightly more serious topic to close out the night. Um, this happened kind of right at the beginning or it was right happening when we recorded the first one of these. And um, curious to get everyone's take. Um, if you don't know Boulevard, not their finest hours. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, getting rid of some folks, realizing they weren't as uh, um, maybe uh, paying attention to things like they should. Uh, you know, the craft beer industry, uh, you can ask anyone. They probably will go, what do you picture? They'll picture someone that maybe looks like this with a nice beard, um, white guy, you know, uh, things like that. But that's not what um, I think should be sometimes. You know, sometimes maybe that fraternity gets going a little wrong. Um, what's everyone kind of think on, on, on the Boulevard situation, whether they handled it right or not, or just in general, what's going on and hopefully changing in the craft beer world? Well, I, I, I feel like I should start off here since I, I worked for that company for 19 years. Uh, <laughs> um, that was a tough week for me. I've, I've, you know, it's been four years since I left, uh, but it was tough for me to watch. I mean, I've got a lot of friends who work there um, and you know, I, you know, I've been gone long enough where there were some of the main players and everything that happened. I, I had never met, uh, but others I knew very well. Um, and, you know, it was, it was hard to see all that play out. And, you know, my, my main takeaway there is, is that, you know, uh, you got to listen to women, <laughs> right? You have to pay attention when, when a woman comes to HR and says, look, this is happening. Like there's no, there's only one way to handle that. You take it seriously and you take action. And that obviously didn't happen. Uh, and it was, it was really hard to, to watch that happen. Um, you know, I, I was surprised by a lot of what I saw that week. And then there were other things that didn't surprise me at all, specifically how, how Boulevard handled that, uh, you know, the, I'd seen stuff in the management structure that made me think that they would probably react poorly to some type of crisis. Um, but uh, I think, you know, there, I'm hopeful for, uh, for the future, despite the, the really terrible bungling of, of their reaction initially, uh, not to mention how they handled it up to the point where it came out in, into the public. Um, 
you know, they definitely, uh, you know, they've turned a lot over. I mean, you know, they've lost three major executive positions. Uh, and uh, John McDonald has come back, which I, I'm hopeful about. Uh, I think he's got some really hard work ahead of him. Uh, it's, it's a difficult position uh, for him. He's one of those people, he's one of the few people that could come into that company and command a certain level of respect with the people there. He's an iconic figure in that company. Mm -hmm. uh, but he also, uh, you know, he was there for a long, long time. He obviously founded the company. So he's got that baggage of having been there all this time and knew all those people. And, and, and so it's, it's going to be, it's not going to be easy for them moving forward. Uh, and I think, you know, looking at it from, a, from, you know, a little more distance, uh, you know, this is, I think, something that's happening in a lot of companies, not just beer. I think, you know, people recognize, I, I think anybody who's been in the beer business for a long time recognizes beer and the beer business in general, not like craft beer. Everybody talks about craft beer as being like this kind of like, I don't know who said like 99% asshole free, which is, you know, a bunch of BS really. I mean, you know, the bigger these businesses get, the more likely it is that there's going to be some type of HR issue, that there's going to be some type of bad behavior that gets overlooked and some bad stuff happens sometimes in these big companies. And this is happening in different businesses all, all over the place. And we've only started to see, you know, in the past couple of years, some of these things come to light and, and a big movement to actually make some changes. And it's coming into beer as well. And it's coming into craft beer. I don't, and, and, you know, the beer business is an old boys club and, and it always has been. Uh, you don't have to work too much in the distributor level and with uh, some of the bigger breweries to realize that it's like that. And when you look at, you know, some larger craft breweries, a lot of larger craft breweries are old boys clubs too. And there's a lot of bad behavior out there. I mean, I've been witness to it myself. I've been in the beer business for 23 years. Uh, so some of this stuff is not surprising, uh, you know, in a big picture standpoint, um, you know, and I think, you know, beer and craft beer has got a lot of work to do. Um, and I think craft beer in particular, because there's this sense that like, you know, we're all chummy and friendly with each other. And, you know, and there's this feeling that it's like 99% asshole free or whatever. But I mean, you know, I think that is kind of almost like being used as an excuse to just overlook some of the issues that, that this industry has to grapple with. I've only worked, you know, I'm, I'm 25 turning 26 next month. And, you know, I've only worked in this industry for a very short period and I'm thankful that nothing like what came out of Boulevard has happened to me. Um, you know, you get those sexist comments every now and then, but um, like I said, I've been lucky to have not experienced anything super major, but what I hope that comes out of this whole situation for other breweries is that you realize how important having some sort of HR is at your company, whether you're a small brewery, you know, there's, you know, less than, you know, 10 employees that you put someone in charge of 
hey, you need to run HR, BHR, if something were to happen or just establish like some kind of, not guidelines, but, you know, if putting something in place where there is a sort of HR program, because I've worked at breweries where there's no, you know, there's, like I said, less than 10 employees and there's no HR, like HR is not a thing. And I think instances like this show you, no matter how small or bigger you are, HR is important because if something like this were to happen, you need to be able to deal with it and deal with it the right way. Um, and you have to have an empowered HR because Boulevard had an HR uh, exactly who essentially like shrugged her shoulders and said, you know, not much we can do here. Uh, and some of the quotes that I've heard mm -hmm. were pretty, pretty bad. Uh, so, I mean, you know, you have to have an HR that's empowered to do the right thing. And that is going to look out for the health and safety of employees and not just be there to run cover for the, for the company. Right. A lot of the comments that I read that came out, this was like, doesn't everyone know that HR just looks out for the company? Well, it shouldn't, it should be a, a, a neutral ground or, and that, that's also something you should, you know, if you're a brewery and you saw the situation, reevaluate re your HR or. Make sure your HR isn't just looking out for the company itself, but your employees as well. Yeah, Casey and Neil stole kind of exactly what I was going to say uh, on the HR theme. But um, just Sorry to, about that, Doug. <laughs> not, <laughs> no, you helped validate it. But, but one thing I was going to add is, you know, like when you interview for a job, you, you often you always talk to the to the uh, HR recruiting manager maybe that's the, the lead off of the interview, or maybe it's the last person you talk to, or maybe both. Um, a lot of times when you're interviewing, you just want to, you know, you feel like you're being interviewed and you forget, mm -hmm. or you don't put enough value on you interviewing them. And I can't stress enough how for evaluating company culture, evaluating the strength of that HR leader is, and making sure they're not somebody who is just happy to have a job and is going to get rolled over on every day versus somebody who's strong and are going to go to bat for their employees. And uh, I'm thankful every day for the HR manager we have at Revolution because she's exactly one of those types of people that all the employees trust. But I know so many don't have that. And so many breweries just are too small to have a full-time HR person. So a lot of times the HR person is the owner. That was the case with us for a couple of years where our owners were the HR people, but then by year three or so, three or four, um, they, they brought someone in. And so I know that's the case elsewhere. So it's not always realistic, but when you're taking a new job or evaluating your current position, can't put enough emphasis on how important that is, is do you trust these the head of HR to go to bat for you and stand up to ownership? Because not everybody, not everybody will do that, but they're gems out there that absolutely will. And those are the people you want to be on the ride with. I just want to maybe put some of this in, in context too. So like the HR issues we're talking about, and I would uh, encourage anybody listening, the Kansas City Star had what I would consider the definitive story with over a dozen interviews, reviews of uh, accounts, reports um, that came out the week of these allegations. The HR issues stemmed from women who came forward to HR with uh, allegations and complaints of misconduct, uh, which effectively bordered on 
gender violence, uh, inappropriate comments, things like that, um, which were, were, as the story goes, kind of set aside. Um, it then became a communications issue when the brewery on back-to-back -back days first released a statement that said that the allegations that came up uh, via a Reddit thread had already been investigated. The company found nothing to alarm them. And then the next day walked it all back. So then it was a communications issue. Um, the third prong, which is the unfortunate reality of having to address this is do these things become a sales issue? Uh, because the, the human cost is real and that we know and the change comes is, you know, does this actually affect the function of the company? Do the, will they lose customers because of this? Which is a very unfortunate capitalist way to put this in context, but it is a, an unfortunate one. Uh, and we have a parallel study with founders, uh, different circumstances. Founders was the basis of a racial discrimination lawsuit. And they had HR mis missteps. Uh, they had communication issues in which uh, their founders were very open and very public that they were in the right uh, when a black employee uh, sued after uh, losing his job for a host of uh, inappropriate comments toward him. Uh, so it, became, it was an HR issue that became a communications issue. It was not a sales issue. In the state of Michigan, founders lost their, their, their packaged chain retail sales declined but their national sales, everyone else increased. And so in the end, it was an internal culture problem that is hopefully getting fixed. It was a communications issue that they're hopefully now aware of. It was not a sales issue. And so uh, with Boulevard, we're seeing aspects of this repeated yet again, where in that Kansas City Star piece, uh, on a matter of communications and, it, it, did, it was not clear to me as a reader and as a journalist if they, the, the lengths that they felt bad about what happened. And all things then lead to, is this become a sales issue? Uh, of which it should not be, <laughs> point blank. Uh, we should not be, to, I should not have to consider, do people still want to buy Boulevard beer because of their behavior behind the scenes? But ultimately that is, you know, one thing that the company itself has to consider. And uh, at least in recent history, from what we saw with founders, the answer is no, they do not have to worry about sales issue. And, and I think I, you know, not that I'm should really have a whole lot to say on this topic, but to that study, I would go with probably gets very well covered in that area. They get hit hard, obviously, Kansas City, you know, the star major newspaper there, and other outlets. Now us being in the beer world, um, kind of what we do, we probably are more aware of it than others. But if I went and asked my wife what happened, she'd probably look at me like, what are you talking about? And I think um, sometimes that's the, the sad part because, um, you know, I, to me, it should make a hit. I think if you screw up that badly, you should get a ding. You shouldn't be able to almost make money off of it. Um, but I just hope more companies pay more attention. I, I worked at a newspaper and sometimes I would wonder like, wasn't, you know, sexual comments or anything like that, but definitely a bullying situation, a male to a female issue. And um, one of my bosses went, ah, oh, I got to be on a, on a call with HR. And I'm like, that shouldn't be your thought. 
Like you should be going, why am I on an HR call and how do I fix this? So I'm not on this and who do I need to, you know, take care of not, Oh God, I got to be on a call. Like we, a lot of things have to change with our, with mindsets for, for certain folks. And uh, I hope maybe this was a wake up call for, for others. I think that's, you know, the big thing is just be more aware, you know, no matter how big you are, if you are a Boulevard or you're a small five barrel brewery in Kentucky where you have, you know, two owners and then like five employees, just be aware of what's going on and making sure you are a good, you know, you are a good owner and a good boss and just, and, you know, Brian, you, you, you mentioned all these things about, you know, sales, you know, I go to the, the beer store and I'm going to pick out my beer and there's always brands that I just skip because I, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to spend my money to support a company that I know that doesn't care about their employees. So, you know, it's just, like I said, just be aware, be, be a good owner. It's especially right now. It's, it's take the time to just reevaluate everything. It's, it's so important where, and I know, you know, social media has done a lot to make these things more aware nowadays. So I don't want to say, Oh, companies are being more careful, but just, it's all about, being, you know, a good company who has good values and, um, and just, I don't know, putting out good, you're putting out good beer, put out good, you know, vibes to your company or whatever. (laughs) Sorry, words are being very difficult right now. (laughs) Uh, No, but but Kenzie, you make a a very good point there. And then, like I said, hopefully not only they're making good beer, but they're making good choices and having, it's a good work environment for everyone to come, come to. Well, Everyone, uh, Neil, Brian, Doug, Kenzie, I appreciate once again, everyone being on the round table. Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of good talk, a lot of interesting talk um, and a lot of different points uh, of view, whether Kenzie just doesn't want to buy a 12 pack or uh, maybe maybe we'll, we'll get her into that. At some I'll, point. I'll buy it. I'll buy a variety pack, but not a 12 pack of the same beer. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Well, I appreciate it all. And, and we'll have to do this again soon. Thanks, so Thanks much. a lot. Thanks, guys. Nice chat with y'all. Uh, I just love the Under the Influence uh, Roundtable series. Uh, pretty much once we, we hit the end button, I just can't wait for the next one. And hopefully we'll have another one for you next month. Uh, stay tuned for that. Also, if you didn't uh, hear me before, check out our Flavorful February series. I know we're in March, uh, but a lot of fun things there. Uh, wild beers, uh, how, how whiskey gets its flavor. Uh, turning beer into whiskey and then of course our flight night with urban artifact is a lot of fun um, and for those that are you know big saint patrick's day fans i mean who isn't um, if you're listening to this podcast at least i hope so we talk with guinness open gate brewery uh, national ambassador ryan wagner uh, next week uh, to talk about the brewery down there in baltimore it's a lot of fun there um, and I can't wait for that. Uh, remember, if you can, check us out on social media at Hop Spirits, all one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't forget to check out our partners in crime, One Sip Beer Review. They're on Instagram at One Sip Beer Review. Near daily, bid- near daily video uh, reviews, some uh, shenanigans, and also some amazing giveaways as well. Check them out. And as I always say, remember, if you can, give it a try. And until next time, cheers, everyone.